Luke 19:28 through 38. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Morning. As many uh, say these days, we've probably all said it one time or another, the world just seems to be getting crazier and crazier. The news is more and more discouraging, and life is getting more and more dangerous daily. The Middle East, which is the place where God planted his people, has been a place of conflict and turmoil for 4,000 years, and it just continues. It doesn't seem to be moving any closer to peace. And neither does any other part of the world. We don't seem to learn from the lessons of history, do we? (laughs) You know, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants both personal peace and peace in our world, but few ever find it. As I visited a young man in jail this week as he was facing some issues in his life, you could sense this need for peace in his life. As I meet with young moms who talk about the craziness of life and the busyness of young children. There's a desire for peace. I talk to men who are busy in their work or who are retired. (laughs) There's still this longing for peace. It doesn't matter what your situation is. And we've tried to find peace, right? In our world, we've tried being religious. Does that work? (laughs) Not really. We've tried more education, more knowledge. If we just figure out more, if we just can have access to more knowledge, like with the Internet, then we can find peace. doesn't seem to work, though. Maybe if we depend more on government, we know how that works. <laughs> Maybe if I can just fend for myself, I can find peace. It doesn't work either. Maybe if we just use enough power to force people to live in peace, but that doesn't bring true peace either. None of that's worked, right? And we just seem to be getting crazier and crazier. More people have been killed in the wars of the last hundred years than in all the rest of history put together. It's not getting any better. But we know as believers in Jesus Christ that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. And as his followers, we need to know what brings peace so that we can spread the news of where real peace comes from. Today is Palm Sunday. As we look at this passage, the triumphal entry, Luke helps us see in this passage what brings true peace 
to the world so we can know it and live it. And it's not abstract in the way Luke describes it here. It's very, very real to our everyday lives. Very, very personal. We need to know it and live it so we can share it with the world in turmoil that is desperately in need of peace. Pray with me. Lord, shalom, peace is the cry of our hearts. You offer peace. You say, peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And we long for that, Lord. Too often we don't find it ourselves, even though we're followers of yours. As we look in this passage today, may we understand more fully where true peace comes from and begin to live it out in a more full and complete way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, he's only five days away from the cross. And Luke, in this passage, sets up a powerful contrast between small town Bethany and big city Jerusalem. As he does so, as he sets up this contrast, he sets up two different ways of trying to find peace, trying to find life, trying to find fulfillment. And he shows the true value of one versus the futility of the other. So we are going to spend most of our time looking at Bethany and their small town faith. What do we know about Bethany? Bethany means a house of figs. I want to show you a picture now of Bethany. This is an actual photograph of the town of Bethany from around 1900. Tried to get one from Jesus's day, but we couldn't find one. But you'll notice it's just a small walled city. And probably in 1900, it was pretty similar to when Jesus walked its streets. You see a couple of shepherds over here. You see the olive groves around it. A little bit of agriculture in the rocky hills. Small, modest homes. Nothing too impressive here. No signs of power or wealth. Now, just so you understand where Bethany is, I want to show you the next slide. So this is the city of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock today, where the temple stood in Jesus's day. So across the valley, the Kidron Valley over here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Top of here is the Mount of Olives. Bethany was just on the other side, behind the hill, out of sight. Of Jerusalem, essentially two miles away is all from the big city of Jerusalem. But I want to go back to the little village and think about this little village of Bethany that was very unimpressive. You see, it's in Jerusalem that the movers and shakers hung out. (laughs) That's the happening place where the nightlife was, where the temple was, the place where anybody who was anybody would hang out. But not in Bethany. Bethany was a backwards little town of a few hundred people. But what do we know about Jesus' contact with Bethany? Well, we know he had good friends there that he often stayed with, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Remember the stories of Mary and Martha, how they had Jesus in their home and they were having dinner and Martha's working hard and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha gets upset, angry, frustrated. It was, it was apparently pretty common, though. They had Jesus over. 
He stayed with them. That was at their home. In the book of John, in chapter 11, it says this. When Lazarus got sick, the sisters sent to him, saying to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. Now, Jesus, verse 5, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There was something special and unique about this relationship that Jesus had with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, as near as we can tell, every time Jesus came to Jerusalem, which was several times during those three and a half years he walked on earth, he didn't stay in Jerusalem. He stayed in Bethany with Mary and Martha. They were special friends. He would commute into the city during the day, those two miles he would walk in, but he stayed at their home. We also know the story of Simon the leper, that Jesus was having dinner at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. And you think about that story and you think about Simon the leper. Why was that his name? We don't know any more details about it. All we know is that was his name, and yet Jesus had dinner with him. Now, why did he go by the name of Simon the leper? He obviously had leprosy, but did Jesus heal him? If not, why not? If Jesus did heal him, then why did he hang on to that name? I wonder if it's because he never wanted to forget what God had done for him in keeping that name, leper. But what we know about dinner at his house is Jesus was there and Mary came in and broke the alabaster jar of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet and washed his feet and dried them with her hair in an incredible act of worship. But that was in Simon's home in Bethany. Bethany was also the place where Jesus' beloved friend Lazarus died. And we're told the story in John chapter 11 where Jesus waits until Lazarus has been dead for four days, and then he shows up. And the Jews are there from Bethany, but also the Jews from Jerusalem are there, and they've been mourning. They're doing the week-long mourning, and then on the fourth day, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Many Jews from Jerusalem saw that miracle. What else happened in Bethany? Well, as I said, it's where... Mary sat at Jesus' feet to learn from him, where she anointed his feet with expensive perfume in an act of worship, and as Jesus said, to prepare his body for burial. It's where the crowd in our passage worshipped him as he approached Jerusalem. And very interestingly, according to Luke, our book that we're looking at today, it's where Jesus met with his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. At the very end of the book of Luke, it says in verse 50, Then he led them out as far as Bethany. This is the risen Christ, okay? He's now risen, and where does he show up? He led the disciples out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. It was the place where Jesus chose to ascend into heaven. And it says they worshipped him there with great joy. And according to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, it's the place of Jesus' return when he comes again. 
Notice what it says in, in chapter 14. It says this of Zechariah. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other southward. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Where does he come and stand? On the Mount of Olives, where Bethany is. (laughs) So what's the point? Well, it's very interesting as you think about Bethany, right? Bethany was a home to Jesus. He blessed it like no other place. It was a unique place in all of Israel. So what made it a place that Jesus felt so comfortable? A place where he honored it with his presence and his ascension and his return. I just want to highlight three things I notice as I think about Bethany and what we've learned as we walk through what the scriptures have to say about it and Jesus's experiences there. Number one, Jesus was welcome in their homes. Jesus was welcome in their homes. Mary and Martha's home, Simon's home. They had meals together. They clearly had close relationship. They loved each other. They made him part of their home life. I was asked this question this week, very interesting question. If Jesus showed up at our door, would we even let him in? Jesus showed up at our door, would we even let him in? If he showed up at the door of our church or our home, would we even let him in? Would we let him take over our home life, our worship life? So what does it mean to welcome Jesus into our homes today? How would we do that? How would we live like they did in Bethany, Mary and Martha and Simon? How do we welcome Jesus into our home? Obviously, he's not physically here, right? What does it mean to have him be present here with us? Well, I hesitate to do this, but I want to talk a little bit about our family, but it's really because of my wife, not because of me. We're, we're in a home now that God clearly gave us. He opened the door. We were looking for a place. My parents were living with us. They were both in poor health, nine of us in a small home. We needed to find a a uh, place with a mother-in-law unit where they could live. And, and Rick Padour, our head usher, said, well, the house across the street has that. It's not for sale, and, but you might ask them about it. So we knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, we just wanted to see what you did. And uh, they said, well, I guess you can come see it, but we're, we don't want to sell the house. And we said, that's fine. We, we just want to see what you did. We may want to add on. And so we decided... We looked around. This was on a Saturday. On Monday, they called us. And they said, you know what? We would sell the house to you if we can make a deal. And we said, whoa, well, we better come see it again because we weren't thinking about buying it. (laughs) Uh, Can we come back Saturday? So we showed up Saturday. This is one week after we first knocked on the door. They said, you know, no pressure, but we've already put down earnest money on another house. 
The next day on Sunday, we signed papers. So from day one, we've sensed that this house is not our own. It's his. And again, my wife gets the credit. Not everybody's like her. But my parents lived with us till they died. Many have come and gone and lived in our homes for various reasons within our home. Because they were hurting. They needed a place to stay. They came for a few months. They moved out. They had surgery. They mental illness struggles. They were getting married soon, needed temporary housing. Uh, our kids joke. They say, you've been empty nesters for six years and you've hardly had any time in the house by yourselves. See, our house is not our own. Jesus is welcome to it. Now, I understand not everybody's like my wife. She's a unique person with a real gift of hospitality. But I guess the question for all of us has to be, what does it mean for us to have Jesus welcome into our home? To really live as though he's present there all the time. And this is his. And he can do what he wants with our home. Do you have a sense that Jesus is present in your home in all that you do? As you eat your meals, as you watch TV, as you look at the internet, as you play, as you work, do you have a sense that Jesus is there, that he's present, and that this is really his, it's not your own? Do you welcome him in? Now, I, I know some of you may say, well, it would be a lot easier in Bethany's days when he was, Jesus was physically here, right? But he's not here physically, so it's harder for us. Jesus isn't here today in a physical way. Well, you know, Jesus kind of does away with that excuse, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 25. He, he does away with that excuse when he says in Matthew 25, verse 31 and following, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit upon his glorious throne. He'll gather all the nations and he'll separate the sheep and the goats, it says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed to my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying, I'm showing up all the time <laughs> in a very real physical way in your life, in your community. I'm here. And he's in the least of these. So he is here especially in the lives of the hurting, the depressed, the needy, the least of these. So what's unique about Bethany, first of all, is that Jesus was welcome to their homes. Their, their heart was open to have him come. Secondly, I think he was welcome to their stuff. <laughs> Jesus was welcome to their homes, but also welcome to their stuff. Think about Mary breaking the alabaster jar of perfume and pouring it on Jesus. It was worth a year's wages, Judas says, because he wants to steal the money, right? We could have sold it and given it to the poor, he says. But then we're told, oh yeah, but he just wanted to steal the money for himself. 
Mary gave her most prized possession, I would guess. She didn't have a lot, I believe. And then you have this story, a fairly extensive story in all the Gospels, and certainly here in Luke, about the donkey. Why do they go to such ends to talk about this donkey where Jesus says, go into the village, when an entering, you'll find a colt tied in which no one has ever yet sat, untie it, bring it here. If anyone says to you why you're untying it, you shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and it explained, you know, he says, this is what's going to happen and that's what happened. (laughs) And they got the donkey. Why is that so significant? Why does Luke in particular make such a big deal about the donkey? Well, we need to understand a little bit about donkeys. You know, a donkey in that day and age was like a poor man's pickup truck. That's how he did his work. A donkey was used to plow the field. Donkeys weren't very good at it, but if you're poor, that's all you had. They weren't strong enough to dig real deep, but they used them to plow the field. Of course, the donkeys were a beast of burden, and so it was like the pickup truck. Anything you wanted to get somewhere, you'd load it on the back of the donkey and haul it somewhere. The donkey was used to ride at times. It was used to grind grain or press olives or crush grapes. You see, the donkey was the most important thing that someone had to do their work. But here's something that strikes me. It says, when they went to get this colt that had never been ridden, which was probably just had been bought, was pretty precious to them. It says they were untying it. The owners said to them, owners. Now think about it. Each poor little family would have you know, a donkey if they could afford it, but if they couldn't afford it, they had to share with another family. So here's a donkey that's shared between two families. And when Jesus says, I need that, they willingly share their most prized working possession. These two families, they were so poor, they had to share it. It was essential for daily life. They said, sure, we'll loan it to Jesus. And then you got the whole thing about the cloaks. (laughs) You know, Luke's the only one of the Gospels that says nothing about palm branches. It's Palm Sunday. But it doesn't say that people cut palm branches. Luke wants to make sure that we think about the cloaks. They put their cloaks on the back of the donkey. They put their cloaks on the road. So as the donkey walked over them and smashed them into the mud, (laughs) they were giving a highway for the Lord to be on. Well, what's a cloak? Why is that significant? You see, the cloak was a very, very personal item to people in that culture, to the poor especially. It was your coat to keep you warm when it was cold. And we know this was early spring, right? It was the time of the Passover, so it wasn't that warm there. The cloak was the blanket you slept with at night to keep you warm. Sometimes it was used for collateral on a short-term loan, we're told in the Old Testament. It was very, very valuable. Why doesn't Luke mention the branches? They were there. Well, because he wants us to think more about the cloak. He's making a point. The people of Bethany laid out for Jesus their most personal item, their cloaks. You see, in all this, I think Luke's trying to tell us something, and that is these good people of Bethany offered their stuff to Jesus, whether it was their most prized possession, the 
alabaster jar or their most important working possession, their donkey, or their most important personal possession, their cloak. Jesus was welcome to all their stuff. And in light of all that, one of the most powerful verses to me in this whole section, maybe in the scriptures, is where Jesus says, go, go get the donkey and tell them the Lord has need of it. Think about that. This is the Lord of the universe. <laughs> this is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the one who sustains everything by his powerful word. All of creation, every heartbeat, everything is sustained by him. And he says, I need your donkey. Why does Jesus say that? He doesn't need it. It's because Jesus has chosen to need what you and I have to accomplish his purposes. Jesus chooses to need our stuff to accomplish his purposes. You think, it's just my stuff. It's just an old donkey. It's just an old pickup. It's just an old cloak. It's just an old sofa. It's just an old... And Jesus says, I need that. I choose to need what you have to accomplish my purposes for the kingdom. So the question for us is, is it really at his disposal? Is all my stuff, the expensive stuff, the cheap stuff, the working stuff, is it really all his? Is he welcome to it for his kingdom and his purposes? Bethany's stuff was, is ours. I know it's tempting to feel like, yeah, but... If I loan it, if I give it, if I do this, it might get dirty. It might get walked on. It might get donkey droppings on it. Yeah, that's true. But whose stuff is it anyway? Is Jesus welcome to our stuff? So in Bethany, Jesus was welcome to their homes. He was welcome to their stuff. And then finally, the question for us is, and what we see about Bethany, is that Jesus was welcome to their worship. We know the story of Mary breaking the alabaster jar. She worshiped Jesus, prepared him for burial. Here, the people of Bethany are singing praises to him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They understand where peace comes from. It's in worshiping him. They're giving him their praise. These poor folks recognized who Jesus was and with Great joy, it says, and a loud voice. That's what it says. With great joy and a loud voice, these poor people who didn't have a lot were willing to share what they had, and they're praising God. They're giving Him all their worship. He was welcome to all their worship. You don't see any complaining, do you? Is Jesus welcome to our worship? We all have things we worship because God created us as worshiping beings. Every human being worships. They either worship the Lord Jesus or they worship something or someone else. But we all are creatures who worship. If we aren't worshiping him, we will worship our stuff, our celebrities, our sports figures, ourselves, our status, our jobs, our power, our spouse, our kids. I mean, you can just go on, right? We all find things we worship. And when people look at our lives, if they look very closely, they can tell what it is we worship, brothers and sisters, by how we choose to live our life. What about us? What do we worship? 
So what made Bethany a home for Jesus? Why did he choose it as the place of ascension, the place of return, the place that he loved to hang out? Well, he was welcome to their homes. He was welcome to their stuff. And he was welcome to their worship. He loved to be with people with that kind of small town faith that the people of Bethany had. And you know what? The people of Bethany, they knew the way to peace. It was living with Jesus having access to all of me. I'm yours. But there's this big contrast in the next few verses with Jerusalem. Listen to verse 39 and following. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, for shalom. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem is literally the city of peace, Yerushalayim. But we see how they're responding to Jesus. Rebuke your disciples. Down in verse 47 and 48, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, it says, The Jews from Jerusalem were all angry and said, man, he's getting a following. We've got to destroy this guy. So what happens when Jesus comes? I want to show you another picture here. So this is a picture from the top of the Mount of Olives. It says, as Jesus was riding the donkey and the people are singing praises, Jesus comes over the top of Mount of Olives and he looks down and he sees the city of Jerusalem again where the dome of the rock is would have been where the temple is but it was a fairly large bustling city and when Jesus crests the top of the Mount of Olives and he looks down on the city what does he do he weeps and there's several words for weeping in the Greek language and this is one that means to wail with deep powerful mourning he weeps over big city religion He wails over it. He knows it leads to destroyed lives and ultimately it leads to rejection of him. You see the kind of big city religion that says, hey, I have to maintain my power, my control. It's up to me. It's what I do that's important for God, not what he's done for me. I've got to maintain my stuff, my power base, my own interests. And Jesus, if you get in the way of that, I'm going to destroy you. What does Jesus do with big city religion like that? He weeps over it, and ultimately he judges it. He gives a prophecy here of 40 years later from this time Jesus crested the hill and wept over Jerusalem. 40 years later, in the rebellion of the Jews, this whole city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Titus, the Roman Roman general, built a ditch all the way around the city wall. And for seven months, he besieged it. And everybody who tried to get away, when they went in the ditch, he killed them. P- 
people were starving and some of the zealots inside said, well, we don't want anybody to negotiate with the Romans, so they burned their own food so no one could escape. They were all destined to die. Finally, the wall was broken through. Everyone was killed. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes it this way. The city was so thoroughly razed, R-A-Z-E-D, razed to the ground by those that demolished it to its foundations that nothing was left that could ever persuade visitors that it had once been a place of habitation. All because the people of Jerusalem did not understand what makes for peace, Jesus. Oh, that you could only know what makes for peace. Bethany got it. Lord, wow, I worship you. You're the Savior. You died for me, and everything I have is yours. I'm living for you. Jerusalem didn't get it. Yeah, I got to maintain my power base, my status, my religiosity, my stuff is mine. And I'll go through the motions of being religious, but I got to hang on to my stuff. Big city religion, where it's all about maintaining control and power, this kind of faith never leads to peace. But small town faith, where our stuff, our status, our homes, our power aren't important to us, Jesus is. And so he's welcome to everything we have. And if it gets stomped into the ground, you know what? That's okay. Use it, Lord, for your kingdom. You see, that's the kind of faith that Jesus blesses with peace. Jesus brought peace when he died on the cross. Ultimate peace. But our experience of living that out in our daily lives comes as we learn to submit everything to him and say it's yours. Use it. Use me for your kingdom. That's small town faith. And that's the kind of faith that Jesus blesses. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. But thank you that it calls us to die. It bids us come and die and give all for you to welcome you into all that we are, into every room of our hearts, every part of our lives, and give you authority. May we be people that when people look at our lives, they say, I knew what they worship. They worship a risen Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.